The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Why is big business in New Zealand? It's actually quite remarkable that one of the world's most popular styles, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, emerged from a small New World country with vines replacing sheep grazing to make Marlborough the world's most recent great wine region. Prices we command for New Zealand wine are some of the best margins in the world, and anywhere you go, there will be a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc on the menu. And today's guest believes the potential of our fine wine could be huge for New Zealand too. New Zealand has had many trailblazers on the winemaking side and a few on the industry side and today's guest is a bit of both. Having been a winemaker here and around the world before becoming winemaker and buyer for massive UK grocer Marks and Spencers, revolutionising the way they made, bought and marketed wine. Next, he became one of the fewer than 400 people ever to make the grade as a master of wine and spent 10 years as co-chair of the International Wine Challenge perhaps the most rigorous, impartial and influential wine competition and little gold sticker on a bottle that you will find. Sam Harrop now splits his time between his winemaking business in Spain that makes nearly 6 million bottles of some of the world's best organic wine and living in New Zealand making beautiful single vineyard wines with a focus on simplicity. Sam joins us now to chat about the journey, the way he makes wine today and the drinks biz. Kelda, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Simon. Thanks. Hey, thanks for being here. Um, first up, like, take us back to the beginning. Like, what first got you into wine? Well, that that is a great question, and um, I think I'll have to be truthful <laughs> and tell you the the whole the whole thing. So, basically, I, I did a bachelor of commerce at Auckland University, and in my first year, I was really uh, not enjoying it. Um, close to dropping out. In fact, spending more time in the pub than in the lecture hall and uh, I was talking to a mate of mine at, at the Globe actually, I don't even know if that pub still exists and telling him I was going to drop and he said, so what do you like doing? And I said, well, well I, I like drinking as, <laughs> as I drank on a, a pint of, of beer and uh, so he, he kindly said, um, well, why don't you get into booze? And the rest is history. I had to finish my Bachelor of Commerce to do a postgraduate at Lincoln and I never looked back. I, I you know, I found my passion in wine, and um, and it was a it was a great to find it so early in my life in my career because, as I say, I've never looked back. What was it that that made it your passion? Because it's such an interesting mix when you're at that kind of higher level of of winemaking and the like, of science and art, and a bit of magic. 
Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. I mean, it's it's such a subjective area. When you taste a a, a wine, one person may love it, the other may hate it, and some people might say, "Well, that's a nonsensical product." I mean, how can there be such a divergence in in um, in, in, in preferences? Uh, I, to me, I love that. I love the fact that I own my opinion, and you own your opinion. No one is right. No one is wrong. I mean, it's. It's your personal opinion that counts. And, and that, that is what really inspired me about wine. I mean, especially coming from numbers and, and a Bachelor of Commerce, which is so tangible. I love the intangible. And I love the emotion that, and, and the stories around wine as well. I mean, you just need to speak to any winemaker or any um, winery proprietor. Who, the stories they can share about their, their love of wine, their adventures and creating a, a wine business. It's, it's inspirational, and um, it's plenty of fuel to drive more than one career, I can assure you. And it really connects people to places, doesn't it? And, I mean, tell me about your early days in winemaking and, and it kind of taking you around the world. Yeah, well, so that is one of the great things about wine, and certainly one of my a great privileges uh, in my career is, is the potential to travel with wine. So... I mean, I, I started at Villa Maria um, straight out of university and within two and a half, three years, I was on the road. So I went to California, Napa Valley, worked for a tiny little biodynamic estate called Litteri, who's now sort of moved on to being one of the best, um, most highly regarded wineries in, in the United States. Moved on to Australia, actually, to a company called Rosemount in the Hunter Valley, a massive brand at the time. So I went from small to big. And then ended up at Marks and Spencer. So um, while I was at Marks and Spencer for seven years, I traveled the world maybe 120, 150 days a year. So all over the world. I mean, as a winemaker buyer, I was selecting and making wines in Chile, Argentina, France, Burgundy, Southern France, all over France, Spain, basically the, the world of wine. And it was an incredible experience. And so you meet people, you experience the most wonderful um, cultural uh, experiences and culinary experiences. And, and it's just, it was just a wonderful period in my life, to be honest. But travel is a very, very important part of, of the wine career. And if you don't like travel, stay away from wine, I can assure you. <laughs> and long days in the harvest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. Hey, um, in, in that Marks and Spencer role, like any uh, you know Kiwis listening that have been through uh, you, you know Europe and the UK will know what the supermarket or grocery landscape is like there. But yeah, yeah, lay, lay it out for us as it's a bit different than New Zealand where, you know, we have so many wine brands that are kind of real wine brands, you know, for want of a better word, that turn up in our supermarkets. But the kind of role of the buyer and the grocery in shaping the wine that's on the shelves is quite different there, hey? Yeah, it is. And, and New Zealand needs to continually look to the UK and models like Marks and Spencer, I think, over the next 10, 15 years. There's no question. I mean, Marks and Spencer was always the leader when it came to, came to own label products, not just wine, I mean, clothing, food, all sorts, own label. So the Marks and Spencer brand was all they sold in their stores up until very recently, actually. And I think in New Zealand, typically we've thought of own brands as being kind of... Um, I mean, in a derogatory way, almost cheap and cheerful, and but but not not the case in the UK at all. Marks and Spencer's is was a premium brand, 
and aspirational brand. And that's where I think New Zealand needs to get to because we're missing a trick. The, the grocers, the wine specialists in particular, need to look to their own label brand as being a way to market their business. I mean, how many products in the world sit on a table for two, three hours with the brand staring at the, the individuals consuming it? I can't think of any, apart from wine, to be honest. The food comes out of the packaging. Um, everything comes out of the packaging at that table, apart from the wine that stays on the table and stares stares you down. An amazing marketing opportunity that the retailers are missing. So that's my sort of tip for the future. I think own labels will must be um, embraced by the, the grocers, by the bigger wine retailers in New Zealand to promote their brands. And not at a cheap level, but at a premium level. And having had that background in commerce and numbers and also uh, in the winemaking, it must have been the perfect kind of marriage of a job as kind of, you know, people here, because we don't have the same kind of retail structure, might not kind of, you know, the, the massive volume in wine is through grocery. Like, it's, it's it's the super volume. And the decisions of those winemakers and the styles to champion and the styles uh, to, to support and get on shelf, uh, the varietals um, to, to introduce to people, are hugely influential in, in, in wine around the world as a result. Yes, so I don't know exactly what the the recent stats are, but certainly we always say 80% of wine sold on the off trade, which is the where you take the wine away to consume elsewhere, uh, is sold through the major grocers. And in New Zealand, we only really have two, which is, it's scary to think so much wine is sold through so few chains. It may not be quite as high as that, but typically 20 to 30%, I think, of New Zealand's wine is consumed on premise. That's all changed with COVID, of course, um, and the balance being sold off-premise, off-trade. Now, that, since COVID, the, the buying patterns have changed and will remain changed for some time to come. The, so the, the strength of the grocers is, is, is gaining momentum. And so I think what's, what's interesting, it's the same all around the world, essentially. And, and what drew me to Marks & Spencer was not the economies of scale, was was not even the different, different business model and the opportunities to travel. For me, it was to understand business of wine. Look, wine is an industry where, where the vast majority of winemakers and people working in wine, whether they're distributors, uh, retailers, whatever, they are in it for the love of wine. There, it's, there is an emotional connection with wine. The vast majority of of people working in this industry. It's not it's not normal to the world that there is such so many people working in an industry can, that that are there because of passion and emotion. And so with emotion so so high and so strong, often decisions are led by the gut rather than, you know, the reality, the data, the stats. So when I went to Marks and Spencer, it, it was purely to try and understand what the customer actually wants. So few wine retailers are looking to the customer and what they actually need stylistically, brand-wise. Let's go back to that point about Marks & Spencer own label. I guarantee you speak to all of the retailers in New Zealand, vast majority of them would say, oh, own label. No, that's not what the customer wants. How do they actually know what the customer wants? I think the customer wants the, the actual brand to be simple. I don't think they want so many stories. They just want, most consumers want to 
to be able to get a, an affordable wine that is fantastic, that doesn't preach elitist, artistic um, nonsense. They just want something they can relate to and enjoy and share with friends, not to overcook it, not to over-intellectualize it. And that's where I think New Zealand's another chapter in New Zealand's history is rapidly approaching in terms of retail is to for the consumers to fine-tune their, their message, understand what the consumer wants, and deliver it. And I guess those brands are also kind of, uh, they give people confidence that, you know, if it's got that name on it, it's going to be good and it's going to be worth the money. And if they take it to a dinner party, their friends will, will know that, you know, it's going to be of a certain level of quality. And that's a very similar thing to the the wine labels, that you know, the, the gold medals and the stickers you find on things. Um, tell, tell me a bit about, like, being involved in the international wine uh, uh, competition, um, yeah, the challenge rather, like how, how did you get involved with that? And uh, what, what's the impact for wines if they do get a gold sticker? So I guess uh, as a master of wine, as you said, I think there are only 394 um, in the world. Once I got that in 2003, uh, the doors opened in many respects um, in my career. And one of those doors that opened was the invitation to be chairman or co-chairman, I should say, of the world's largest wine competition, the International Wine Challenge. And I did that for, I think, 12 years. And, um, and, and it was just, it's, I do believe strongly in, in the wine competition model. I think, you know, once again, it's hugely subjective. And, and, you know, who's to say, and you'd be right in saying this, Sam, you just said earlier that wine is a subjective thing and, and no one's right, no one's wrong. That is correct. But but the fact is competitions that get multiple people judging the same wine again, again, over and over, fine-tuning their decision, their results, are more likely to have strong consistency. And whatever they endorse, whether it be a gold medal or a silver medal or a trophy, whatever it might be, there's a pretty good chance that wine is, is going to be accepted and appreciated by, by most people. With, and I'm discounting the brand story, so I'm just purely looking at the the liquid, there's also a chance that it might not be to your tasting, your, your taste and your preference, but that's beside the point. So few consumers in the world, realistically, understand what good wine should taste like. When you start that journey as a consumer, endorsement, i.e. medals on bottles, is actually really helpful and important to help you navigate your way through this labyrinth that is wine. And it gives you confidence, and then from there you can learn and find your own preference, tasting preference, and then you start the journey, and it becomes really interesting from that point on. So it's like a, it opens the door to a world, a wonderful world of wine consumption, a really important tool. Tell me about that journey to becoming a master of wine. What's actually involved? What do you have to do to, to, to reach that club of fewer than 400 people? Yeah, well, it's it's. Um, I got it. I passed in two thousand and three, and and um, it's changed a bit since then. But but the principles remain the same as when I I did it. It's a three year course. A minimum, it takes three years to pass if you pass it first time. There are three components. There's the first year, which essentially um, it brings you up to speed and 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 assesses the student's capacity potential if they past that first year exam, they go on to the final exam. Now, the final exam it cons um, consists of three components. There's the, there's the theoretical component, which is the um, essays about anything from the winemaking, viticulture, commercial, um, uh, marketing, all these sorts of things. And that's a, 
that's a, a four, there were four papers within that, and that takes um, yeah four days essentially in the afternoons, and then the mornings are the practical component. So that that is where you taste, and you get three flights, twelve wine flights, uh, on consecutive days, and uh, generally the first day is is white, the second day is red, and the third day is anything goes, you know, but but also fortified and sparkling, and you. Let's focus on that, that practical component. You can be asked any kind of question about the wine. Where is it from? It might be from Romania or from Jerez in Spain, New Zealand. Anywhere in the world is possible. How is it made? What is the, your interpretation or your pre, how do you appreciate the quality of this wine? Uh, how long do you think it will age for? In some cases, you might be given a flight of Burgundy, Pinot Noir, and you're asked to identify which village the wine came from, which, which variety, what vintage it is. So you really have to know your stuff. And, and it takes a huge amount of study, not, not just the three years or the two years before you, you know, get that pass. You, it's, you need at least 10 years' experience within the game to be able to be accepted to the course. So it's a professional qualification. Um, that you know you should work to, towards for a very long time before you actually do the exam. And I was very fortunate; I passed the first at uh, first attempt. I think it's got a pass rate of ten percent. The uh, the masters of wine. Um, after, by the way, after you do the the exam, the four day exam, you then if you pass, you you go on to a, a research project, um, a research paper, which um, it has to be an original piece of work between six thousand and ten thousand words uh, about the wine in any capacity. It sounds kind of like, you know, what people would imagine as the kind of parody of it and almost in a way, like giving so a flight of wine, so that's just twelve glasses with just the you know, you don't see any anything else except the wine and the glass. And you just from the nose, from smelling it and from tasting it, you you have to tell them what village it came from in some cases. Yeah, it it's it's pretty intense. I mean of of course they're realistic you don't have to get every single wine mm. right, but you have to show a very sound reason, you know, there has to be a, a, a method to your madness. This wine comes from Marlborough because it it has the aromatic profile of a Sauvignon Blanc, grapefruit, pink grapefruit, passion fruit. Um, it comes from Marlborough because it is the most intense Sauvignon style in the world. Uh, the acidity is pronounced, it's natural acidity. The alcohol is 13.5% alcohol. There is no oak. You have to justify where it comes from, what the variety is, by, by utilizing all your knowledge, winemaking, commercial knowledge as well. So it's not just a simple sort of um, process. You have to draw from years of experience and knowledge. And is that skill set, you know, like um, scent is something that, you know, can seem so subjective until you get into something like wine and then you find that people are judging things by the same um, by the same standards once you've kind of learnt and trained yourself up. So you have to train up your kind of senses but also have kind of like a library of knowledge of all of these different styles and areas and varietals and all, all the rest of it. Yeah, gr- great point. I mean, wine is, is such a weird Product. It's such a weird industry, and many are beautifully weird, I should say. I mean, it's got a it's got a profound lexicon. It's got its own language, really. And what's really difficult for a lot of consumers to understand, and probably one of the reasons why a lot of consumers think it's elitist nonsense at that sort of intellectual level, is because the the lexicon, the vocabulary, is very personalised. 
So I say the swine smells of, of, of wet wool or, or smells of a pavement in summer and a summer sun shower. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. You're onto it. Um, so, so whatever. But to me, that might be just that that could be a completely different assessment or understanding than it might be to you because um, you know, the smell of, of, of herbs where you're from in, in Asia may be very different from the smell of herbs where I'm from in California. So there, there are sort of environmental factors that define that uh, lexicon. There are also metaphorical factors. So, for example, a very trendy term used in wine tasting at the moment is minerality. What is minerality? Well, mineral, minerals don't have a taste. They don't have aroma. They're neutral. So how can we apply this notion of minerality to, to wine speak? To me, it's more of a metaphor. It's this, the, whatever aromas and flavors you're picking up in that wine are conjuring up in, in your own mind an imagery of, of minerals and, and soil and, and, and lime limestone or whatever it is, you know. And to some people, that minerality might just be purely a textural thing. To others, it might be this, the aromas, the earthen aromas. To others, still, it might be a combination of both. And so I think, yeah, it's a tricky thing to, to, to get used to, the lexicon. But for those who are just starting their journey in wine, I think just keep it simple. Don't get too scared of all these, you know, romantic and colorful terms that wine professionals use. Um, just have your own, you know, five or six terms, green, ripe, juicy, and then go from there. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful tool called the Aroma Wheel, which has hundreds of flavors that you can look at online that can get you started at least. But I tell you one thing, and this is really important for all consumers, I don't care whether you just like drinking wine for the alcohol or whether you're, you're some kind of intellectual wine guru, you have to be mindful. You really have to be mindful. Alcohol in excess is not good for you. You know, that, that is a fact. It's proven. So one way to stop, you know, drinking in excess is be, to be mindful when you consume, right? And um, so I find having these, the, your own lexicon and, and actually just spending a couple of minutes when you taste a wine just to reflect on what you are seeing in the wine, what you're tasting is one key sort of tool to be mindful and to just stop, don't drink so quickly, and a preset, which is an, which, what is an incredible beverage with so much history. And, and, and it's a wonderful product that we should enjoy mindfully, not just you know, sculling it back and waiting for the alcohol to hit. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. Join me for Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a new series brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. I'll be chatting to academics, activists and industry leaders to turn a unique lens on the issues impacting Aotearoa and Te Ao From structural equality to liberalising drug policy, Implications for our mokupuna and more will bring you thought-provoking kōrero about the things that count for all of us. New episodes will be available each month, so subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.
If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fun that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. And it's definitely something that, like like any skill, you kind of grow in confidence as you go on. Hey, because as you as you start with wine, I mean, it does smell like you know grapes or like <laughs> like alcohol or um, you, you know, and it's and it's uh, through the process of kind of building up that that lexicon, as you say, and that that confidence in it. Like the New Zealand um, style of wine, which we'll 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 come to in a minute. Um, you know, is, is often like, you know, like you're saying, the Sauvignon is um, so famously kind of um, strong. Uh, but a lot of international styles, if you've grown up in New Zealand drinking the New Zealand styles, can seem kind of wildly subtle or um, like there's not much going on if you're not used to them. Um, t- tell me about kind of your experiences in in Spain, especially. And what's different about making wine in Spain, where you, you, you're part of a, a winemaking venture there? Versus the the kind of winemaking that you do in New Zealand. Okay, so so this is one of the great things about about wine in general. Every region is so very different. It has the potential to be so very different. And you know, Spain is a big country, right? I mean, it's but but when we think of Spain, we think of I guess I don't know about you, but most people I talk to think of Spain as the Costa Brava beaches, tapas, warm, hot, um, you know. Dry, you know, crazy hot, 35, 40 degrees. Well, there are parts of Spain like that, but there, it's, there are so many different aspects to Spain. There's the green Spain in the north, you know, the Basque country, Galicia, which is, you know, in some cases wetter and cooler than many parts of New Zealand. And then, um, you know, there's the, the plateau at the altitude, eight, 900 meters, um, which, is, which is dry and warm, but the nights are very, very cold. So, to generalize about any country, it's wine styles is absurd, but I do find that Spain gets hit with crazy generalizations, perhaps because we have this generalization of Spain as a whole as being a dry, very hot place, which is not the case for all of the, certainly all the wine producing regions of Spain. I mean, Spain makes some incredibly delicate and light and aromatic white wines. And the, go to the Basque country, a great example. I mean, it makes some incredibly fragrant, light, elegant, um, ganaches that are more elegant and lighter than many of New Zealand's Pinot Noirs from the, you know, just north of Madrid at eight, 900 metres in an area called Gredos. Some of the Riocas we're making at Bodegas Barriola in Rioja Alavesa, 80, 90-year-old vines, Tempranillo, so elegant, so light, 12 and a half, 13% alcohol, wonderful acidity, so fresh, nothing like what we've been led to believe Spain is, which is overripe, jammy, fruity, you know, um, overcooked sort of red wines. So I'm, I'm impassioned. I'm, I'm really excited about the, the project in Spain. We, we've been going since 2013. It's called Peninsula Vinicultores, and we make wine all over Spain, but primarily in an area called Ucles under the brand Mesta, which I think is probably the largest selling organic Spanish wine in New Zealand. It's one of the largest selling um, organic wines in the world. But certainly there's, it's sold all through New Zealand. Um, our distributor mineral do a fantastic job. And it's about 14 pounds. It's organic. It's just, more importantly, it's sustainable. And this is the thing we find when we sell to distributors and retailers all around the world. They're more interested in sustainability than organics, believe it or not. Because a lot of organic wine is not actually sustainable. To be organic, 
you have to, in, in certain regions, you have to work the vineyard harder. You have to burn more fossil fuels driving your tractor through there. You have to spray, in some cases, more copper because you're, you, you're not allowed to, spell, uh, to spray pesticides and so forth. So there, there, there's a, not all organic wineries are sustainable. So we find certainly dealing with the big retailers around the world, sustainability is the more important factor. And I think post-COVID, as, as consumers are more interested in, in, in the ethical and the environmental message, these, the sustainable message is going to become more and more important. And New Zealand's well, coming back to New Zealand, New Zealand's very well positioned, to be quite frank. We have a, probably the most advanced um, sustainable certification uh, in, in the world of wine. Uh, we need to continue to progress. There's no question. We need to make sure that we're not resting on our laurels and prove our, our standards. Um, so we can shout to the world that we are leaders, still remain leaders in sustainability because it will become a very important factor. But coming back to your question, um, so Spain is, is a bigger volume thing. It's $14 a bottle, so it's really affordable, you know, wonderful Tempranillo um, and, and Verdeco, which is a white variety from high altitude Castilla-La Mancha, Castilla Mancha. Now, as I said, around 6 million bottles, so it's not small. My business in New Zealand is very different. It's, it's, it's similar in some levels. I focus on site expression, as I do. I think site expression, the terroir, as the French say, trying to interpret the, the, the vineyard where the grapes are grown, to me, is really, really important. Because in that point, you get amazing diversity. What I don't like in wine, and, it, and it's changing rapidly, but 10, 15 years ago, Robert Parker, wonderful wine journalist in the United States, encourage just through his taste preference encourage producers cheap producers fine wine producers alike to pick the grapes ripe to use lots of oak so high alcohol high extract lots of oak and and those wines all were wonderful to many people but they all taste quite similar homogenized in effect by studying the site as a winemaker whether it's a six million bottle spanish um 14 buck wine or a $40 bottle of Waiheke wine um, from a single vineyard, by studying the site as the winemaker and by backing off on the input, so not as much oak, not as much moving the wine around, the picking a little earlier, so not overripe but not green, not stirring the yeast so much, not adding too much sulfur, doing very little in a sense, but, it's, but also using methodology and a controlled approach so that the, the wine quality is maximized and there are no faults. By taking that approach, and I call that approach sympathetic winemaking, a bit like sympathetic architecture, where you're listening to nature and you're designing a wine that, that is, in, is a, essentially a reflection of nature and the vineyard, um, you, you, I think you're adding to the diversity of wine, which is so important, I think, for the future of the wine industry. Consumers will remain committed to wine as a special beverage only if it remains special. If it goes down the homogenous route, then it will not be special anymore. It'll be a commodity product. And there's, there's a role for commodity products, but we need to increase the diversity, in my opinion, to sustain the wine industry. Yeah, working at both ends of the spectrum like that, I mean, and, and internationally, uh, how well served are we in New Zealand with our fine wines? Because we're, we're famous around the world, of course, for that Sauvignon Blanc style, which, you know, it, it is a commodity. It's a pretty interchangeable drink around the world. But it's one of the better commodities in wine, isn't it? It still achieves a pretty good margin for a commodity kind of style. But there's, there's, but where's the room to kind of add value there? 
And, you know, what what are our kind of $40 a bottle wines like compared to $40 bottle of wines from around the world? Well, I'm really glad you brought this up because this is an area I'm really passionate about. I think, look, I, I believe in, in trailblazers. I believe in commodity products, whatever the industry, but in wine. New Zealand wouldn't have a wine industry today if it hadn't been for Montana and, and their investment in Marlborough. It's that simple. That They took, and, and others, of course, took Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc to the world and the world fell in love with it. You know, if they build it, if you build it, they will come. That's exactly what happened. But it, but it's well, winemakers have refined their the process and maximizing are uh, maximizing potential. Um, the wine is quite homogenized. Uh, you know, for example, Kim Crawford is not too different from a Oyster Bay. Is not. I mean, there are differences, of course, but but they're you know, I mean, they're, they're similar in many respects. Um, variation on a theme. Most people don't see any difference. It's a price-driven commodity business. Now, that's what the customer wants. I said earlier in this interview that, you know, most consumers just want the message simplified. You know, they don't want to get too intellectual, but they want, in many cases, the wine to be endorsed by an expert. The price has to be right. The brand has to be trustworthy, all these things. But let's look at where wine is going longer term. And I think, you know, I keep on coming post-COVID. I mean, it was happening pre-COVID, but... There, there seems to be a division in wine. the wine market became more and more pronounced. You know, there are consumers who want to drink special wines. They want to have wines that are, are very exclusive, that are, that are premium, that have a story. I think that, that consumer base is growing. I think, that, of course, we, we, want to, we want to hope, essentially, that the commodity base will remain the same. And let's hope it does for New Zealand's sake and the world's sake, because there's a lot of vines out there. But, but the real interesting story for coming back to New Zealand is the fine wine story. And to answer your question, New Zealand makes very, very, very small amounts of fine wine. We have disproportionately more fine wine makers than we do commodity makers. So, for example, I think we have something like 600, don't quote me, 600, 680 wineries. And I'd say 80% of them, 70% of those wineries would be fine wine or premium wine producers, small boutique, uh, you know, 10,000 bottles, 50,000 bottles. They're not the behemoths that we see in Marlborough, you know, hundreds, millions of bottles um, a year. So New Zealand is, it's, the vast majority of our wine is commodity, is cheaper, is Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough. But there are many livelihoods, there are many businesses, small businesses in the industry that need fine wine to work. Now, the good news is that New Zealand has some of the greatest fine wine potential in the world. And I, I, I take my conflict of interest, my, as I'm a winemaker of what I feel is fine wine, um, but, but I'm a New Zealander, and I, but I take those conflicts away. I've spent 15 of my, years of my career traveling the world, studying fine wine in Burgundy, Bordeaux, all over Europe, you know, Tuscany. And I tell you what, you, some of the wines... Um, coming out of New Zealand, Hawke's Bay, Central Otago, some of the premium wines coming out of Marlborough, all over. And this is another story. Are just mind-blowing. They're so good. The Chardonnays, for example, are just world-class. I recently did a tasting of a selection of fine wines of New Zealand uh, Chardonnays. The fine wines of New Zealand is an Air New Zealand-sponsored um, um, uh, selection or classification like of, of the best wines, fine wines in New Zealand as judged by seven masters of wine who are based in New Zealand. Now, this, we had six Chardonnays that absolutely blew these masters of wine away. They had no idea how good these wines 
actually were. They'd heard of Kumu River Mate's block, of course, and taste some, some had tasted the wines. But the general theme from everyone I spoke to of the 50 MWs there was that these wines are not just as good, but some of them are better than the best that Burgundy can produce at a fraction of the price. Now, you might be thinking, well, hey, Kumu River, you know, Mate's block is not exactly cheap. It's 80 bucks. If that, if you compare that as one of the most premium, expensive Chardonnays in New Zealand to the most expensive Chardonnays in Burgundy, it is spare change, I tell you. You know, the wines in Burgundy, are, the top wines are very, very expensive now. So we offer exceptional value, not just for Chardonnay. We do incredible Pinot Noir, as, as your listeners will know. The Syrah is, in my opinion, has the potential to, to absolutely destroy every top Syrah-producing region in the world. Um, Northern Rhone, um, California, all of them combined, that we just have such potential on Syrah. Our, our Sauvignon Blanc, we haven't even started the premium segment there. I mean, as soon as we start to dig deeper into our vineyards and make single vineyard really sort of sympathetic uh, Sauvignon Blancs from exceptional older vineyards in Marlborough, using a bit of barrel for complexity and texture. As soon as that, we see more of those wines come out. And they do exist, but they're sort of hidden away for the moment as the big you know, producers in Marlborough pump out their containers of commodity wine. As soon as they start to come through into the mainstream, we are going to just see incredible potential for profile building that New Zealand fine wine story. And, and I think Sauvignon led the way for the wine industry with Marlborough. Now Marlborough needs to lead the way with single vineyard Sauvignons for the whole of the fine wine, New Zealand fine wine story. Uh, I think the future is hugely bright. There's going to be a little bit of a, a, a regrouping period over post-COVID. I mean, a lot of wineries are going to be hurting. Uh, you know, I mean, I make eight different cuvees, 8,000 bottles under my own label, Waiheke Fruit and Hawke's Bay, all priced between 39 and 69 bucks. And not cheap, but not hugely expensive. My export orders have dried up, um, but they'll come back. It's about riding out that, that storm that we're in over the next six months to two years, whatever it might be. And I think there's going to be a little bit of herd in that premium segment. The commodity segment, on the other hand, I've just been down in Marlborough, going great guns. I mean, they've never had years like it. I spoke to um, one of the leading brands in the region. He said it's the best year he's ever had. He cannot keep up with the demand. And that's because the big supermarkets around the world are just reverting to, to their core lines. And New Zealand, thankfully, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, brands like the Ned, Kim Crawford, um, Oyster Bay, all of those brands are core lines in big supermarkets, and they're just going, going great guns. So great news for the industry, given that, what, 70% of our income probably comes from those big boys. Bit of hurt for the smaller premium producers, but longer term for those who can stick at the game. The future is bright because our fine wines offer exceptional value and they age extremely well, whether they're white, red or pink. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Like the, uh, you know, the success story of Sauvignon in New Zealand, you know, uh, it, it, it perhaps isn't seen as the most kind of sophisticated of uh, of wines. But overseas, it's kind of in terms of like your, your table wines, it's, you know, it's hard for people here to kind of really comprehend just how, it's like the number one wine in uh, the UK. It's uh, the biggest growth wine in the US, kind of off, off, knocking off um, Chardonnay and Pinot Gris as the absolute go-to for an afternoon wine. And isn't it actually just remarkable to think that New Zealand, like, you know, sheep, sheep grazing land in Marlborough, has, has had this impact? Like, who would have picked that it would be a New Zealand wine that was kind of um, 
so dominant right now. Well, we've got to that point. You're absolutely right. And it's such a fantastic point for the industry, but importantly, the nation to be in. I said before, wine has that branded aspect on the bottle while you're dining. I don't know how many places, uh, dinner tables around the world to, to right at this moment have a bottle of wine with New Zealand on the label. I mean, that is fantastic marketing mileage for the nation. What New Zealand should be doing now? And look, I mean, the government, I'm, I'm, I hope they're doing it. I haven't heard any initiatives, but what they should be doing is pumping money into, into wine marketing globally uh, around the world because it is such a strong marketing message for New Zealand, not just for wine. I can forget about the, the millions, billions of dollars it brings in for the nation. It's that marketing piece. And I think, you know, if, if we can, if the government or other bodies can focus resource on building that fine wine story and markets in particular the United States so that they go beyond the commodity. And you're right, they are buying so much Sauvignon, but it's a cheap Sauvignon. We need to promote the fine wine story so that producers in Hawke's Bay and Nelson and Marlborough, all around, smaller guys that are actually the lifeblood going forward. There's no question. They are the sustainable notion for the wine industry, not the commodity guys. The commodity guys will fall away over time. For this industry to be a success longer term, the smaller guys need to flourish, need to thrive, I should say. The government needs to get behind the marketing of fine wines in New Zealand and the United States and other key markets like China, Japan. And, and I think the time is absolutely perfect for that. Last couple of questions that we, um, we always ask, uh, like to ask everyone. What would your advice be to someone who has found that they love wine and would like to make a career in it? Well, the... the Okay, so, well, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> so I think I come back to, to one of the points I made earlier um, about the emotional aspect. Um, you know, wine is an easy thing to get passionate about if you're working in the industry. Very few people working in the industry are not passionate about wine, and that's because it doesn't pay very well, to be quite frank. Um, I mean, if you get the top of your game, you, you can earn a good wage, but it, a lot of people are out there following their dream and, you know, and having peanut butter sandwiches for dinner. You know, it's, it's not well paid. So what, to answer your question, the, I think the key point is, is resilience. If you stick at it, if you've got the resource to stick at it or the, the, the intellectual resource or the financial resource to, to, you know, keep on working away, I think you'll do, you'll, you have the, the platform for success well and truly in place. But it's not going to guarantee it. And I think it's such a competitive industry. Everyone wants, lots of people want to be in the wine industry. It's very romantic and, you know, year in Provence and all that sort of thing. So you need to stand out. And I think, I mean, any advice I can give your listeners based on my experience, um, I, I would say treat yourself as a product and market yourself like you would market a product. And just don't overcomplicate it because we, as humans, we do tend to overcomplicate things. Just look at, you're the product, look at how you can differentiate from yourself from other products, other wine professionals. And I did that very much. I, I focused on winemaking, but I also focused on business. That was a point of difference. You know, I wasn't just purely production-led. I wasn't just purely commercial. I merged the two. I studied faults for 10 years when I was at the International Wine Challenge. I absolutely focused on faults to understand what bad wine is so I could understand good wine. As a result, I became one of the world's leading sort of um, experts, if you like, on faults in wine. 
And that put me ahead of many people because, in the industry who are more talented and more, um, have more intellectual capacity than me on the basis that they were too scared to dig into the science because they, a lot of people in the wine industry flourish in the subject of space. They're scared to dig into the science. If you're brave and if you've got courage to dig a little deeper into the science and methodology, you can really stand out, certainly on the business side. Very few people bridge the gap between winemaking and business. And I think so that the key part of this advice for any listeners who are looking into it, try to go into a bridging role because the industry needs more winemakers, more um, commercial people who understand the entire industry. So study hard, continuous professional development. Don't just rest on that little comfy blanket that you might have selling wine or making wine. Explore, continually learn about the entire industry and you will succeed if you have the resilience. There's no question. And as a final thought, what will success be for you? Well, uh, so for me, success is, is, um, can only be measured in terms of happiness, really. So I think I'm pretty successful at the moment on that definition. I've had an incredible life, very, very happy in terms of the experiences I've had, traveling the world, meeting wonderful people. I think to extend that definition a little further, professionally, success to me is about adding value to the people that I serve. And the people that I serve, I have two groups that I serve in my career and in, in my profession. And one is my clients. I, I'm a consultant. And I, and I work for a company, for example, a yeast and bacteria producing company. I serve them to promote their products, to uh, trial their products, communicate the benefits. I also consult to wineries. I help them improve their wines, improve value. So I, to answer your question, to be a success on those, for those clients, I have to add value. But equally for the consumers that I serve, I make my own wine. I have to add value for that. I have to improve the quality. I have to improve the value so that the ratio between quality and price is better. If I can achieve that objective, I, there's no question I've succeeded. And, you know, we, we carry on. We continue to improve our efforts and, our, and quality of our service. So let's see if the next 10 years will allow me to do that. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's Sam Harris. Master Refinement, thank you for your time today sharing your story. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing today, and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns.
The Spin-Off Podcast Network.